Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Telescope Talk Pro, our weekly hangout discussion discussion designed to keep you up to date on the latest discoveries, technologies, projects, and science that's being done on ground-based observatories around the world. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today we are going to be talking with members of the Giant Magellan Telescope team which is an which as its name implies is an upcoming giant telescope that's being built right now. Now Telescope Talk Pro is is sponsored by OPT Telescopes which is a leader in telescopes and accessories for both amateur and professional astronomers and I want to thank them for supporting these hangouts and for bringing them to you each week. You can help you can help see what they're up to by clicking on the link in the description box below and uh, they would appreciate it and so would I. Okay, so the Giant Magellan Telescope will be one of the will be one member of the next class of giant ground breaking breaking <laughs> start again ground based telescopes that promises to revolutionize our view and understanding of the universe. It will be constructed in the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, and commissioning of the telescope is scheduled to begin in 2024. Now, the GMT has a unique design that offers several advantages, and we're going to talk about those today. It is a segmented mirror telescope that employs seven of, the, of today's largest stiff monolith mirror, mirrors as segments, and six of them are off-axis, 8.4-meter or 27-foot segments surrounding a central on-axis segment. So this is a really interesting design. Now, forming all of this forms a single optical surface that's 24.5 meters or 80 feet in diameter with a collecting area of 368 square meters. Now, the GMT will have a resolving power of 10 times that, of the Hubble Space Telescope. And the project is, is an international consortium of leading universities and science institutions from around the world. And so that is our topic today. So let me get started by bringing up my co-host, uh, Christian Reddy from Launchpad Astronomy. If you want to subscribe, we're, we're streaming to his channel, and I, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to him. The link to that is also in the description box. Hi, Christian. Hey, Tony, how you doing? And welcome all back to, uh, well, my channel as well, Launchpad Astronomy. And uh, yeah, I'm Christian Reddy, your friendly neighborhood astronomer. So as Tony said, we are really excited to be talking uh, to some representatives from a next generation colossal telescope. This will have the equivalent aperture of 25 meters. And well, I'll just get right on to it with our uh, great guests we have with us today, Dr. Pat McCarthy, the Vice President for Operations and External Relations from the Giant, Mage Giant Magellan Telescope Organization, and Ms. Barbara Fisher, the Primary Mirror Subsystem Manager. So this is great. We have the expertise on both the science and the technology that are going into this telescope. I'm really excited to welcome our guests. Uh, Dr. McCarthy, Ms. Fisher, welcome to our to our little show. Great. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks, Christian. Okay. Thank you. Well, the, all right, let's start from the beginning. The Giant Magellan Telescope. I gave a brief overview of what it is, how big it's going to be, things like that. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how this got started and some of the science that is driving the Giant Magellan Telescope. Uh, Pat, you want to go? Okay, sure. Well, it came about um, around the year 2000. That was the time when Sort of the last of the, of the generation of eight meter telescopes came on the sky. So you recall the Keck 10 meter telescopes came on uh, in the early 90s. They were probably the, the second telescope in a sense to use segmented primary mirror. Around 2000, you had the Gemini telescopes, you had the Magellan 6.5 meter telescopes, you had the, the so-called very large telescopes uh, built by the Europeans in Chile. And people recognized that the scientific return from those larger apertures, say compared to the four meter telescopes or the Palomar 200 inch were enormous. They were larger than what one would have predicted just on the basis of the increase in aperture alone. But more importantly, people could then see a technical path forward to making larger apertures, apertures in the 30 meter range. So we had both huge scientific gains from our prior investment, a clear technical path forward, and compelling scientific goals. And so that led three different groups around the world to think about how to take the next step to build the next great discovery machine. And the GMT came out of conversations between the partners who had built the twin Magellan six and a half meter telescopes. 
And what they recognized was that they had two enormous assets in their hands. First of all, they had an outstanding observatory site in Chile that produces spectacularly good images. And then they had the Arizona mirror technology, these stiff monolithic mirrors that produce fantastic images, images that at times rival the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope. So what they thought was, if we could take this technology and grow it to the next scale, make a larger telescope, and put it here in Chile where the conditions are great, we could achieve enormous gains in science, enormous gains in technical ability to do discoveries. And that's where the GMT was born, in that, that spirit of success and opportunity that came around in the early 2000s based on our experience with the 8-meter telescopes. Now, you, as we've talked about at the top of this, you're an international collaboration. And, and in fact, a lot of ground-based observatories are working this way now. We've just talked with the Dark Energy Survey last uh, last week. That's an international consortium. Most uh, most people, I think now, and correct me if you disagree, but I think most of these bigger uh, efforts on uh, in telescopes, that's certainly true with things like the DKIS telescope on, on uh, Haleakala, uh, international partners. How does something like that get started? How do you, do you just like, does someone say, boy, it sure would be great to make use of all these great things that we've, that you've just outlined that we have available to us. Let's go build it. How do you build up a collaboration like this? Is it a one person or does a group of people get together and say, yeah, let's go see if everybody else is interested in this. I mean, I've always been interested in this. How do people join and get interested in such a big project? It's, a, it's an important question because there was a time in which one could do astronomy uh, with a particularly wealthy or skilled individual, could build their own telescope that would be at the cutting edge. And then it required full institutional support, often with the backers of philanthropists or donors. And then it grew to where there were essentially national programs, say the Japanese Subaru telescope or the um, Europeans would build a telescope together. Now we really have to look over the global landscape to get the expertise, the resources, the organizational structure to build something this large. And typically you need a nucleus of people who have an idea, um, have a passion about it, have the ability to, um, to infect others with that passion. And so with GMT, we had a group that had built previous telescopes. They formed you know, sort of working groups to discuss the science, to discuss the technology. And then we traveled around first the U.S. and then other places in the globe to discuss the concept with people, attend scientific meetings, chat with people uh, while observing at other telescopes, to just to try to build support and see who would be interested. And it took about six or seven years to build from that nucleus to the full international partnership. But typically you speak to the astronomers first, you convince them of the scientific merits of the idea, of the, the merits of your technical approach, and then eventually you have to talk about, well, can you really afford this? And then when the astronomers are on board, and that typically takes, oh, I don't know, about five minutes actually to convince the astronomers. <laughs> and they talk to their dean and the dean says, well, that's a great idea. But no, the answer is no, we can't afford it. And then you work on the dean and then the dean goes to the vice president for research and the vice president for finance. And typically, eventually you wind up in the office of the institutional leaders to try to convince them that this is a good investment for their university for their government agency, for whatever organization they lead. Um, and that process takes typically a couple of years to convince them that this is the right move. But one thing about astronomy and about telescopes is that they really capture the imagination of people. We've never had difficulty convincing people that this was a great idea. And usually if we work on them for a while, um, they see the value of it and then they try to figure out how to solve the institutional and financial challenges of becoming a partner and then eventually they put us in contact with their lawyers and accountants and they make it happen. <laughs> so, it's, so it's not at all a uh, <clears throat> for a lack of interest or desire, uh, but it ultimately does come down to resources, right? And specifically money. As a matter of fact, I uh, just want to give a shout out to uh, one of the commenters on, on my chat, Frank Kenny, uh, who pointed out that uh, unfortunately, when the University of Chicago joined the collaboration, they found it necessary to close uh, the Yerkes Observatory. So there's only so much to go around. So making that case is, is crucial. Yeah, it's important. Um, there's also a couple of things though to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Things that happen closely together in time are not necessarily causally related. The oh. decision to close Yerkes, which was really most unfortunate because it's, you know, historically it's a fantastic yeah. observatory. 
today, one doesn't consider Wisconsin a particularly great place to do ground-based astronomy. And so I think there were forces in motion that were going to lead to that change. I think Chicago joining the GMT is probably not what caused that decision. It might have been a factor, but I think they just happened in the same time frame. But that said, one of the challenges in science is when you build a new facility, you can't always continue to operate the existing ones. In some sense, you have to, to make a break with the past if you're going to lead into the future. And that's in all areas of science. And that's sort of, that's part of life. I mean, that just happens yeah. to all of us is you have to make choices. Well, um, and, and thanks for explaining that. Yeah, you're right. It ultimately does come down to choices, but it sounds like a, a great choice has been made uh, with GMT. But uh, you know, at the beginning, we were talking about the telescope's design, and it has an unusual design. We, we've seen. Well, hang on, hang on. I want to get to the design, but I want to talk about the science before we do. Uh, I got tons of pictures well, on the design. Okay, all right. I was going to do the design first, then science. This is why, as you can see, this is a highly well scripted, <laughs> uh, professionally produced uh, thing. All right, Tony, go ahead. Science. Right, so, uh, okay, so with because we've got a lot of we got a lot of great uh, images and stuff to show of how you're building it and what the design is but the science what all of this is driven first by what science you want to do was there what is the science that you're hoping to get done with the with the with the uh, giant magellan telescope and how is this decided so what we're hoping to do is something completely unknown and unexpected and i say that not in jest but there's, there's two angles to the science planning. First, there's all the science that we know we want to do that we can't do now. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But more importantly, there's opening discovery space, enabling new and unexpected advances in science. And we've learned through many decades of planning, the planning that went into the Palomar telescope, that went into the Hubble Space Telescope, the Keck telescope, that typically the greatest discoveries that are made by these next generation facilities are not the ones that you thought about when you planned it, but are the unknown unknowns, the unexpected, the breakthrough discoveries that were enabled by the new technology, but were not necessarily anticipated. Whether that's the discovery of the expansion of the universe, the discovery of quasars, the discovery of neutron stars, um, the discovery of planets around other stars, well, that was anticipated, but not the incredible diversity that, that happens in those planets. So I hope that the next generation of astronomers would use the GMT to make discoveries that are not in any of our planning documents and are completely unexpected. But so, you can't ask engineers like Barbara to design a telescope by just saying, just make something that will discover something new and exciting. We don't know what, just something new. So we have to have a set of science goals that we can then translate into engineering requirements so Barbara and her team can actually deliver the telescope. And can you maybe just give us a quick brief uh, bullet point of some of those goals? What yes, are some of absolutely. the goals? We have a, a document prepared by our scientific advisory committee and it starts locally and asks um, what are the nature and the properties of planets orbiting nearby stars? I like to think of this as getting to know the neighbors. We want to understand the nature of planetary systems. And in particular, we want to characterize planets characterize the chemistry of their atmospheres and ask, can we find signatures of biochemistry on other planets? So that's one of our core science drivers. The other extreme is we take advantage of the fact that light, that while it moves really fast, it's not infinitely fast. So as we look at things that are further and further away, as you know, we see back in time, and we wanna use the giant Magellan telescope to look back to the earliest times after the Big Bang when the first stars and galaxies formed, say when the universe was about 50 to 100 million years old, to see that era of cosmic dawn, the first light in the universe. And that's part of why you build a giant telescope to collect enough light to see those most distant and hence earliest stars and galaxies. Now in between those extremes, there's a whole lot of astrophysics having to do with the creation of the chemical elements, the growth of black holes, the formation of galaxies, the interplay between dark matter and luminous matter. And we have a long set of scientific objectives that relate to that core astrophysics. But the two pillars really are life on other planets or the nature of planets and first light in the universe. And that's awesome. what we need to drive the design. Great. Okay, Chris, you go. <laughs> okay. Well, so now that we understand the, the major pillars of it, um, I, uh, well, I have another question, but let's talk about the design because it is it is unusual. Like I said, we were talking about, uh, you know, we've seen telescopes with these huge, gigantic individual single mirrors. Uh, we've also seen telescopes like Keck, which uses segmented mirrors, kind of jigsaw together. This is different. This is something that uh, maybe there's only one telescope that sort of kind of does what this 
design does optically. Uh, Barbara, could you tell us about you know, how this design was arrived at and, and what, it's, what you think it's going to be able to, to do uh, that other designs cannot do? And just so you know, I've got the rendering up uh, and it's being shown right now. Well, I think that history, Pat would probably be better served to answer that question. My area of responsibility is a very um, uh, small part of the telescope. Um, so I'm the primary, uh, the primary mirror subsystem manager. And so what I'm responsible for is leading the team that's developing the support structure for the primary mirror. And um, in that, you know, so if you want to step back and talk about the telescope design in general, you know, sure. Okay. Well, let's clarify one thing. When Barbara says she's responsible for one very small part of the telescope, <laughs> the critical part, right? Well, it's a part that yeah. it has to work. Um, there's not just making mirrors, there's making sure that they stay in the right shape and stay in focus. And that's critical part of the, the thinking and the decision-making that went into this design. So I said that what we learned around 2000 was that the Arizona mirrors, which they, they're built on the heritage of the Palomar primary mirror, which is a monolith. It's um, Pyrex, so it's a low thermal expansion material, and it's very stiff mechanically. And what we would love to have done was simply to make one 25 meter diameter mirror that would have one you know, contiguous optical surface would just you know, cover all the collecting area and that would be great but there's two challenges one is the experts who build these large mirrors particularly the team at the university of arizona at the richard f Karras mirror lab they believe for fundamental reasons having to do with material science and thermodynamics that it's hard to make a mirror any larger than about eight and a half or nine meters in diameter even if you could there's a challenge of how would you get it from arizona to the top of a mountain in chile it's hmm. actually pretty difficult and there was a time when people said, well, why don't we just make the mirror on top of the mountain? Well, you might be able to do that, but if you did, you couldn't even pick the mirror up. It would, it would break, fracture under its own weight. So we recognize there's a, there's a fundamental limit, at least right now. There's a, a practical limit in the size of an individual mirror at about eight and a half meters in diameter. So if we want to make a larger after, we have to segment, use a number of mirrors. And our thinking is, the best optical surfaces are those that are contiguous, that don't have gaps, don't have edges, don't have discontinuities. So if you want to minimize those, you make the largest possible mirror segments you can, and those are the eight and a half meter mirrors. Hmm. Now there are two different technical paths to making these large mirrors. They're what are called the thin meniscus mirrors. Those are what's used in the Gemini telescopes and Europeans very large telescope. They're solid, but they're relatively thin. Um, and they're relatively floppy, but you can control their shapes and they have the advantage of they're made out of a, a material that has essentially zero thermal expansion. And then there's the structured mirrors, the Arizona honeycombs, which, which look very thick. As you can see, say in picture number six in your, uh, in your chart, and the mirror really looks thick, uh, but as Barbara can tell us, it's about 85% empty space. That yeah. makes the mirror very rigid. And perhaps Barbara, you wanna talk a bit about the structural properties of the mirror and how that allows you to control their shapes and combine them to make one coherent optical surface. So the way the mirror is constructed, as constructed as you can see in these images, so that it starts off as one um, monolith, and what they have in there are these um, silicate cores, and they fill that they fill in the um, in image. We can I think it's probably image two. Image two, okay, it's up. Yes, so image two, this is the beginning of fabrication of the mirror. And so they fill that with um, the glass and chunks of it. And then if you go to um, uh, image four, that is the closing of the chamber where they heat up that glass and it melts and it goes into, and if you go to, back to image six, the glass fills the gaps around the core. And then that creates a nice thin, it's about one inch thick surface for the mirror. And then it's supported by the core in the back. So it creates this honeycomb structure that supports that thin um, surface of the mirror. And so then if you go to um, image seven, actually probably image 10 is better. That is where now that we have the finished mirror after it's been treated and the glass has formed. 
then they need to hollow out the back of the mirror to create that honeycomb structure. So you can see that in, in image 11, where you have that the cores have been um, removed. So then now you have this honeycomb structure, which is a light weighted mirror. And even this itself is about 17 <coughs> metric tons after it completed mirror. So, just, so I, I'm sorry, Barbara, I just want to see if I'm making sure I'm following this. So if I start back with image two, I have, we have, we start with all this, these big chunks of Pyrex that are being uh, smoothed out. And then we go from that to uh, the honeycomb in image six. Uh, after the heating is what is the white stuff in image six? Oh. That is the that is the um, what is the material? I think it's, it's aluminous silicate. So silicate. A, you see, there's glass, and inside that though, there's this forming material, aluminum silicate foam. Yeah. It's kind of like the tiles on the old space shuttle. <clears throat> it withstands mm -hmm. a lot of heat, but it's still structurally very sound. And I think as then Barbara described, after that's done, then they have to water jet all of that out to leave the hollowed out mirror. So you need something to get that hollow structure. Then you have to get rid of all that once you're finished with it. Okay. okay. And then you're left with image 11 is the final yep. stage. Is that right? Well, it's an intermediate stage. Okay. That is now you have, now you have your mirror forms, but then you need to form the surface of the mirror. So. Okay. And, and if I may just uh, quick interject here. Uh, so in image 11, it's all hollowed out. It's 85% empty space, or except for air. Right. And it weighed how many tons? 17 metric tons. Yikes. That's still heavy. I mean, I know it's a lot lighter than it would have been, but wow. That's uh, okay. I thought it was 17 tons before you hollowed it out. So heavy. <laughs> When they pick it up off the floor, uh, you're you're clocking in at about forty tons, and so uh, that's you know that's that's a heavy that's an interesting lift when they lift your uh, yes. your very expensive piece of glass off the floor and weighs forty <laughs> tons. That's when you find out whether the glue really works. <laughs> yes, and then you can see in image eight how they do that lift. So we have a lifting fixture that has um, that we, we lift it using vacuum. So that that lifting fixture. Oh, it's glue at this stage. Sorry. Yeah. So at this stage, there you have a um, an RTV-like um, material that they can easily remove. So they attach those points to it, and they use that to lift the mirror. In later stages, we have we use a vacuum yeah, lifting on the fixture. polish surface. Once it's nice wow. and yeah. you don't want to put glue on it. Right. Okay. So you've hollowed out the mirror. What happens next? Okay. Um, if we scroll down, is there a picture of the load spreaders? Uh, which picture would that be? That one. That one. GMT Mirror Four load spreaders. Okay. So in in this picture number four, the mirror is actually upside down, mm. and they're mounting the load spreaders on the rear surface of the mirror. So you, the where the where the honeycomb is exposed, and so what these load spreaders do is. Um, so the load spreaders interface with our actuators, and I'll talk about those in a moment, but they spread the load of the weight of the mirror, and the mirror is lifted with a bed of actuators. So this step here, you can see them bonding on the load spreaders on the back surface of the mirror, and they use an RTV-like material to bond them on, and they use a laser tracker to place the position of each of those load spreaders so that we can match the location of those with the location in the interfacing part. Hmm. And the, uh, did you, and, and is this particular image the central segment because of the center, um, the center brown yes. circle there, or is this one of the off-axis elements? No, this is the center segment because okay. there's a, Hole in the is now a good time to talk about the actuators or do you want to wait on that um that's up to you we can i would love to talk about those actuators <laughs> okay go ahead wasn't so what, what they're for yeah. i have a piece of one sitting here right next to me to share with you oh wow well then let me show you instead of the picture absolutely go ahead <laughs> well um actually what i'd like to show before i get into the the actuator i want to oh. give you um, an overview of where they go. So okay. if you put up um, my snapshot picture, M1 snapshot, 
okay, I'm looking here. M1 snapshot? I don't think I have that one. I, I see it. Yes. Okay. Uh, it's B dash M1 snapshot. It's the uh, fifth image, or I'm sorry, it's in the, no, it's uh, not fifth image. Uh, it's a uh, PDF. Oh, I can't PDF, show PDFs. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize um, that was a PDF in there. I can, hang on. I might be able to get this, might be able to make this work. Um, I think I can show my screen. So let me switch over try to show my screen if i can sorry folks we're just hmm no i don't see a way to share my screen darn it um oh. well i can i can talk to if you if you put up image oh, um, oh wait 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 i've got it uh all right i got it too here we go i've got it here we go uh, all right well who's doing who's sharing am i sharing or are you sharing i got it it's good okay okay so um, do you, you have that available now? Yep, go ahead. Excellent. So if you look at this image or this um, uh, layout that I, that I put together, um, or actually one of my team members put it together and um, so it was collaborative effort, but um, you can see in the top left corner uh, a, a rendering of the telescope itself um, with all of the seven mirrors um, in their flower shape. Then um, if you take one of those mirrors and expand it out, you can see uh, a mirror standalone to the right of it. And so now that's the front surface of the mirror that is you know, looking into deep space. Then um, below that, you can see an expanded mirror of the assembly um, of the mirror with the cell and all of the components um, below it. So what you're looking at is the front surface of the mirror. And then behind that, you can see what we call the cell of the mirror. That is the, that is the structure that supports the mirror and all of the M1 subsystem that, um, that positions the mirror and offloads the weight and any temperature gradients that are in it. That's what the actuators function are. And so below the cell, you can see um, a bunch of components um, behind it. And then to the, to the right are, is the triple actuator itself. You can see um, this um, device that's on like a tripod. That is a, what we call a triple actuator. And then the actuator itself inside it are three air cylinders. And then you can see an exploded view of the air cylinder itself. And so those actuators support um, each of the mirrors. There are um, 80 single actuators around the perimeter of the mirror, and there are 90 triple actuators in this, in, um, throughout the, hmm. the, the rest of the mirror. And we have that so that the mirrors can be positioned um, at any, any orientation of the telescope. It will be able to support uh, the weight of the mirror. And we can also interchange the mirrors because the mirrors will be on a um, on a, on a cycle, you know, they'll need to have the surfaces cleaned and we'll need to recoat them over time. So we need to be able to um, interchange the mirrors. Um, so the triple actuators, they counteract the effects of gravity. Earlier we'd mentioned how heavy the mirror is, even in its hollowed out state. And then also this is exposed to the atmosphere. And so the temperature um, is gonna be quite cold and it, there could be very windy. So there could be a temperature gradient across the mirror, but we want the mirror as a nice um, even temperature. And, um, and so what the actuators do is they apply forces onto the back of the mirror um, so that we can have the prescription of the mirror stay as close to our uh, requirement as possible. And um, so that we can have the best image quality as possible. So, so, so just to clarify, um, so you're saying that the actuators are, are not, you don't set them once and then that's it. They're going to adjust and push, pull, or I don't know about pull, but push on specific parts of the mirror from behind to keep its shape adjusted as the telescope is moving and even throughout the night as the temperature changes? Correct. Wow. Every 30, every 30 yes. seconds. Yes. Every 30 seconds. Every 30 seconds, okay. Focus, recollimate, and adjust yes. the forces on the mirrors. Correct. And this wow. is not to be confused with an adaptive optics system, is it? No. This is what no. we call active optics because it's controlled actively 
but not adaptively. And the adaptive takes out distortions introduced by the atmosphere. And you sense you might think that Barbara's job is to deliver the perfect telescope. And then there's another group doing active adaptive optics that has to get rid of the atmosphere. Pat, just but, a lot more but, pressure. But you need to start with the right shape of the mirror to begin with. <laughs> right, right. Because adaptive optics won't help if the, if the mirror is out of prescription. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, so I didn't realize uh, how much just went into just supporting the mirror. And keep in mind, this is just one of seven mirrors. And uh, so you're going to have, uh, well, seven of these systems, uh, each with 90 actuators. Yeah, and there's one more layer of complication. So that's what you see to the right on that picture. Um, to the left is a hard point. And so the mirrors are mounted on a hexapod. So it, there are six of these hard points mounted to um, two in three different locations. And what they do, they don't take any load. That's the actuator's job. But what they do is they position the mirrors relative to each other. We call that phasing so that the mirrors operate as one monolithic surface. Hmm. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and so, and then another challenge that we have besides getting us all to work, um, I don't know if you noticed in the news over the weekend, there was a 6.7 earthquake in Chile. I did not um, know that. Oh, no. In La Serena, which is um, the closest city to where the Giant Magellan Telescope is going to be located. And wow. so um, there's, you know, there's a pretty sizable seismic environment and a pretty, um, you know, high probability that, you know, the, the telescope could see an earthquake in its future. And so one of the things that we're designing into the actuators is a damper. Um, so in case there is a seismic event, we can mitigate um, against any, um, you know, damage that it could potentially cause. So if you look um, on that image there, you see the cross section. So that's the air cylinder itself. And so I have an actual picture of one. Let me see if I can show you here. So if you look here, this is a uh, transparent tube and um, of our air cylinder, as you can see in that cross section there. Lift it up and just so a tidge. Lift, there, there you go. Good. Oh, there we go. Oh, so sorry. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So this is an actual air cylinder. This is a prototype that we built to um, test to make sure we have, you know, the right, um, you know, leak rate and the right pressure and that we can control it, um, you know, the way that, um, that we have designed it. But one of the other concerns that we have um, that we learned, we discovered last year is that we're worried that during a seismic event that this will act as a pump. And then when it pumps, it will create a vacuum um, on one of the chambers here. And so we wanted to test to see if that would occur. And um, we, we have shown that it, it, it is possible. And when, it, when you pull a vacuum on here, the diaphragm that you see here, which we call a diaphragm, um, it, it kind of um, implodes a little bit. And, um, and if that happens, when we go to uh, repressurize it, it could potentially you know, damage one of the um, uh, one of the bellograms. And so when we add the dampers in here, it is slow that rate um, of pumping to help prevent that. And then we're also put in a check valve. So we're, we're designing in, um, you know, mitigation to prevent that from happening. So we created this and um, so that you can see, you know, what is what what is occurring when we test this to see what the impact is of a, a seismic event. So what would you say in terms of a, on the Richter scale, how, how resilient do you think this would be? Uh, what kind of earthquake you expect this to be able to withstand? Um, we are designing the, the telescope there. So it's not just the actuators that we're, gonna, we're putting in protection. We're also right. putting it, you know, in the, um, we are having a, an isolation system at the base of the telescope. Oh, yes, okay. And I'm not very familiar with that design, so okay. I can't do much to it, um, but uh, we have been working on our seismic analysis and um, the range of earthquake that Chile could see is from, you know, seven to nine. Um, we're still defining, you know, what the probability is of what size of earthquake that we are designing to, so I don't have that specific number just yet, but that's the range in which um, the level of earthquakes that that area could see. In, in practical terms, it's it's about a magnitude eight plus that we have to survive 
and we've, we've spec'd this to um, the maximum likely earthquake to occur in a 2,500 year period. So we're being pretty conservative because as Barbara said, if we break one of the mirrors, it's really bad luck. And if you break seven, <laughs> it's catastrophic bad luck. Yeah. yeah. We really have to protect our investment, the investment for our stakeholders yeah. to make sure that the probability of damage during a seismic event is lower than all other risks. And so we have a pretty good understanding now of the seismic behavior in Chile. And now we've been doing the engineering to make sure that the telescope and most importantly, that the precious optics would come through any such event unscathed. And that's something that's, that's new to all of these next generation telescopes. They're now on a scale where the, the amplification and the accelerations that occur in a big earthquake threaten their, their very survival, whereas the smaller telescopes didn't have that so much. And also we just have a better understanding of the seismic environment and we have better analytic tools to predict how the telescope will respond to ground motion. Well, it's very interesting with the with, with in the view of the of the earthquake situation and the 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 primary mirror design that you've come up with. I want to read a couple of comments from Charlie because I I I understand where he's coming from here, and I'm a little I'm a little confused about I'm not confused, but I I wonder about the choice of Pyrex. He goes uh, E6, which is Pyrex, is not zero expansion coefficient material. E6 is what these mirrors are made from, so. You need to control the mirror temperatures closely and bend out any thermal deform, uh, deformation. Then he comments later, thermal control is also important to avoid mirror seeing. Uh, that, is the, that is that the mirror needs to be within one degree C of the air temperature to avoid thermal air currents on the mirror surface. Can you comment on that? Are you going to be controlling the, ter the temperatures of the primaries? Yes. If you um, go back to that image on the snapshot, um, and if you look at the bottom section of the picture, um, uh, I'm sorry, which, which image do you want me to put up? Uh, the PDF. Oh, the okay. PDF M1 snapshot is Got what it. I called it. It's up. Okay. And so if you look um, at the bottom portion of the picture that you'll, you'll see on it's the bottom left, um, there's a series of um, heat exchangers and fan units. And so our thermal system, what it does, and then there's also an array of, of, of um, nozzles, and those nozzles are being sized and the flow rate is being sized, but, but basically what's happening is there, we're pushing air into um, the back surface of the mirror. So those nozzles will protrude into the honeycomb structure and will bring in air in there to uh, keep the mirror cool at, a, at just the right temperature or actually it's really to keep the gradient out to keep it at a nice even temperature and so basically the cell that you see there we, we put that we um, pump air into there so it becomes a lower plenum and it's pressurized and then the air pushes up through the nozzles into the back surface of the mirror and then it's drawn out back into the cell so it recirculates itself Wow, that's really cool. So it, it's uh, it's, and you have fifty of those mounted on the bottom of each mirror yes. cell, there's, each mirror hard point. Fifty fans. There are fifty fans, and then uh, a lot more nozzles. Okay. Since we're pressurizing that, it's pushing the air up evenly through all of the nozzles. The fans draw the air out of the back of the mirror. But your your listener makes a very good point, and and we have confidence in this technology because we're using it now on our six and a half meter telescopes. We understand the thermal properties, we understand the control. And the way we know we're doing this well is that we could compare the seeing delivered by the atmosphere to the seeing delivered by the telescope and they match with astonishing accuracy. So this issue of thermal gradients and mirror seeing, we take very seriously. And fortunately, we've already tested and proven this technology on the current generation of telescopes. That's what gives us the confidence that it will work on the GMT. Great. Um, I've got the rendering back up again, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the secondary. I know, Barbara, you're the primary person, but maybe uh, you could just comment. So one, two, three, four, six of these seven segments are off-axis elements. What kind of secondary is sitting at the end of that pier, that tress? Is it a is it a is it a single optical surface? Is it a, a combination of optical surfaces? Hello. So oh, basically the secondary mirror is segmented 
in exactly the same way as the primary mirror. So there's one secondary mirror for each primary. And that gives us a lot of um, control points in essence for maintaining the alignment of the telescope, particularly in the face of wind buffeting. So you can think of the secondary as an upside down, but scaled version of the primary in which the individual segments are 1.1 meters in diameter rather than 8.4. And six of those are off axis and the central one is on axis. Okay, wow. So for every element in the primary, there is a corresponding element in the secondary, which will give you a focus down at the image plane. Yeah, and wow. since it's a Gregorian, the secondary is located beyond the prime focus. And so light from one primary mirror travels to the secondary on the opposite side and hmm. then brought back to the focus through the hole in the, in the central primary. So you've got like crisscrossing each other a little bit uh, as they reach the secondaries. Um, I understand that the secondary mirrors are, uh, they're all, well, I understand you have two, you have two assemblies of, of secondary uh, and one of them is designed for adaptive optics. Uh, so maybe now would be a good time uh, to talk a little bit about the adaptive optics system. Can you tell us just briefly about how it works? And Sure. So the idea, the way I like to describe an adaptive optics system is it's kind of like your noise-canceling headphones. And the way noise-canceling headphones work, as you well know, is they sense the signal you don't want, which is the noise, and then they put that wavefront into a deformable membrane, like a speaker, but exactly out of phase with the noise. So when the signal hits the out of it's the distorted surface, the noise cancels out, and you're just left with the sound that you want. Hmm. Adaptive optics is the same concept where we measure the wavefront distortions imposed by the atmosphere, we put them onto a deformable mirror, but exactly out of phase, and so when the wavefront hits that deformed mirror, it's restored to its original flat wavefront shape. And the challenge compared to, say, an audio headphone is, we have to do this at optical wavelengths, which are very, very small, as you well know. And that out-of-phase um, features, that signature changes about 500 times a second. So you have to be able to change the shape on your deformable mirror at a rate of about 500 hertz to a kilohertz. Now, ideally, you'd like to do this on the primary mirror itself. That would give you the best correction, but no one has yet figured out how to make an adaptive primary mirror. Typically, telescopes either have small mirrors inside re-imaging systems to do this, this uh, deformable element, or they use the secondary mirror of the telescope itself. The secondary is kind of the second best place to do this adaptive correction, because it gives you a wide field of view. You don't have any extra reflections. You don't have any extra backgrounds. So what we do is we follow on the technology developed in Arizona and Italy, is we have a mirror that's, what, about two millimeters thick, the adaptive shells? Um, and behind that, we have voice coil actuators. They're kind of like they do the same job that the actuators that Barbara showed you, but they run at 500 hertz to a kilohertz. And so they're mm. constantly adjusting the shape of those mirrors. Wow. They do them a fraction of a micron or a micron or two at the most. And they constantly change their shape to cancel out the atmospheric distortions and deliver a diffraction limit image to the telescope focus where the science instruments can use that either to look for planets near bright stars to measure the mass of black holes or look at the structures of galaxies and star forming regions. That's amazing. So, so this is really, uh, this is going to effectively cancel out the turbulence of the atmosphere. But uh, as you mentioned, this is to within a micron. Uh, so are, these are suited for infrared observations, I imagine, right? I said that the total stroke is a micron. The accuracy has to be about uh, 20 nanometers because the mm. telescope should be diffraction limited uh, at wavelengths shorter than what the atmosphere will produce. So we expect this to work down to around one micron, and they'll get, you know, progressively worse corrections as you go to shorter wavelengths. We have another approach to deal with short wavelengths, but this is really a one to, to 10 micron kind of capability. Okay, so, so, this is, um, so this is something that, so was I correct in saying that this is going to be uh, really effective in the infrared part, or will this also work in optical wavelengths? No, you're right. This is really an infrared capability. Cool. Great. So tell me about the short wavelength, the optical stuff. Uh, how, are, there, are there ways of cheating the atmosphere there too? Or Up to a point, um, there's two things that limit your ability to, uh, to correct the wavefront errors. One is the, the number of actuators or the spacing of actuators on the primary mirror. Because as you get to shorter wavelengths and you want to still be lambda um, over 20, you have to work to smaller and smaller correction scales. 
And then the atmospheric time constants become shorter as you get to these small scales. So you have to have more actuators and you have to have them run faster. So our team at University of Arizona is doing this kind of work on the six and a half meter telescopes at Los Campanas. And they found they can do good adaptive optics correction down to the wavelength of H alpha. So about six tenths of a micron. Wow. They can even do it a little shorter. They've even set it up where they put an eyepiece on the telescope and you can look in and you can see a diffraction limited image with your eye, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Wow. It requires a fairly bright star, but if you're interested in planets around stars, that's okay. So the way they do it is they use um, um, small mechanically, uh, you know, commercially produced deformable mirrors that are driven by the usual liquid crystal displays that have very high actuator counts. They have relatively small stroke, but very high actuator density. They work on very bright stars and a tiny, tiny field of view. We're talking about corrections only across about three arc seconds. But if what you want to look at is very, very small, pushing down to those very fine scales, you know, three arc seconds still has a lot of resolution elements. So we're looking at a way to adapt that technology to GMT that would give us this high frequency tweeter capability in essence to push the adaptive optics to short wavelengths um, to very high contrast, which is really what you need to do to look for planets. Because if you were on Alpha Centauri, looking back at our solar system, you'd say Jupiter, well, it's only reflecting about one part in a hundred million of the sun's light. Sure. And it's, you know, it's a, it's an arc second or so away. The earth, which is actually one arc second away, is reflecting uh, one part in, uh, in a few hundred million. So that's a pretty hard contrast. That's pretty tough to do. So that's why we want to do this exoplanet science. We have to take the X and the AO to the next level, the so-called extreme adaptive optics to get this very high contrast. So we're, we're trying to develop a technological path forward on that. And as always though, it comes down to good control of the optics, good position, placement, thermal control, and then this very high speed adaptive optics. Fantastic, thank you. That, that's, uh, so there is, a, there is interest in getting there. Obviously I know there's interest in getting there, but there is a, uh, as you said, there's a path that might yeah. in fact get us there. So that's great. Um, Tony, what would you wanna, did you wanna talk about anything uh, on the instrument side or, cause I, I know we've got a couple questions coming in and I know we're starting to run out of time. Well, I was hoping to get to where we are uh, in construction at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. and, and you know, how that. things are going, uh, on that. I mean, you, you've given some, uh, some site photos. I'd like to show some of those and maybe talk about where you are right now, uh, on mm -hmm. construction and when you're hoping to see first light. Right. Okay. Um, we've, in the pictures you can see, uh, let's see, it's probably best to look at, you know, they don't have the greatest names, uh, site dash 26 or so that's a drone image of the overall site. So we'll back up a bit, we spent a lot of time testing the site to make sure we understood its atmospheric properties. We have 30 years of weather data at this location in Chile, so we know we've got a good site from that point of view. We wanted to make sure we were at a place where the airflow was good. We then leveled the top of the mountain in 2012, so that, uh, that took some work. We had to move about 40,000 cubic meters of rock, so that would take nine meters off the top of the mountain. Then we did a little testing, and now that the telescope and the enclosure design are, are approaching you know, their final state, we've started to excavate the top of the mountain for the port to put in the foundations in essence for the dome that protects the telescope and for the telescope pier itself. Because as anyone who has a telescope in their backyard knows, if you don't put it on a solid foundation and it just shakes all the time, it just drives you crazy. So the telescope sits on a massive concrete pier and we dig foundations into the rock to make uh, that extra stable. So if you look at site 38, um, that's them digging the hole where the telescope pier foundations will hmm. be. And we expect to finish and complete all of this excavation in the next month or so. Then we'll do some cleanup and we're putting in some more power lines and getting the water system set and we've upgraded the roads and we have housing for 250 people. And, and right now we have about a hundred people on the site every day doing the construction work. And around late in this calendar year, which is sort of the next summer season in Chile, we'll start putting in the rebar and then pour the concrete for the foundations. And it's a little more challenging than say, you know, pouring concrete in your backyard if you're gonna, you know, fix up your garage or something because you're on a remote mountaintop, you know, two or three hours from any city. So you just don't have the concrete trucks drive up. You have to have a concrete plant on top of the mountain. You have to mix all the concrete there. 
And naturally, you want to do this in one single pour that'll take about two or three days. So it's, a, it's an interesting civil engineering challenge to build this infrastructure on top of the mountain. So that's the work going on right now in construction in Chile, but there's a whole nother set of activities, of course, to build the precision machinery that will go in place on the mountain. So we've been working for many years to finalize the design of the telescope. And now we're working to select a vendor who can do out all the details and then manufacture the telescope. And I would say in the next three to six weeks, we will choose from two vendors who've submitted binding fixed price proposals to us and we'll pick one of those, work with them for about 18 months to detail out the design and then they'll start cutting the steel to put it all together. And we should have that telescope assembled in a, in a factory in around 2023 or 24, check it all out and then we have to get it down to Chile along with Barbara's mirrors, you know, and getting the seven mirrors from Arizona to the top of the mountain is another interesting story. And we've, we've started to work on that in the sense that we have the first mirror in its shipping container. We've moved it across town, so we know how that works. And we've shipped mirrors to Chile in the past, so we understand how that all works. <laughs> so around 2024, the, the dome will be constructed and closed at least so that everything is out of the wind. The telescope will be shipped from wherever it is being built, and some number of the primary mirrors will have made it to the top of the mountain, and then you have to start putting it all together. And that, that'll take a while. That'll take a year or more to put it all together, and then another year to really shake it out to make sure everything works. So, so there's, there's a lot ahead of us, but it's exciting to actually be digging in the ground, getting ready to pour concrete, really seeing stuff come together after about 10 years of design now we're really starting to see hardware and earth moving equipment and it's a very exciting time for us wow. so we're looking at about mid 2020s then uh can i go ahead and show this one that says summit one uh rgb sure i think, I think that's the finished or it's a, that's the rendering of what it's going to look like when you're all done that's right and that's beautiful look at that i mean that thing <laughs> i love the cars there for scale that's that's absolutely <laughs> stunning yeah um, you know i i noticed that enclosure it's um it it almost looks like it's large enough to fit a second telescope in there uh do you do you know why that uh enclosure seem is so um oversized for la especially very tall yeah. how would you describe or do you know why you want to talk about this has to do with how we handle the primary mirrors Oh, it does. Oh, probably for installing them and taking them out. Yep. Um, yeah, um, you know, I, um, I'm not as familiar with the enclosure design, but when you have the mirror in the, uh, do we have, can you hand me the model over there? There you go. So I should, there's a model. So when we go to remove a mirror and Oh, I want one of those. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, where can we buy those? <laughs> um, we can send them to you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. So here's here's a paper model of the telescope itself, and so there's a crane in the enclosure that will go down, and we'll have a vacuum um, lifting fixture that's mounted to that crane, so that we can lift a mirror off of the telescope and then down onto um, a transport vehicle so that we can move the mirror into a neighboring facility. So if you go back to the picture here, the first one, oh, I can't see the number. It's at the so summit one. Summit one, yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a building you see there next to the telescope. So we're mm -hmm. going to be putting a coating chamber in there. Hmm. So we need to be able to recoat the mirrors throughout the, the telescope has a 50 year life. And so we need to remove those and recoat them on a periodic basis. And so you need that much space to be able to lift the mirror off in a safe manner and set it down onto its transport vehicle. Okay. What's so the enclosure coding? might play a role in supporting the cranes and yes. that that's probably why it's as tall as it is, or that is why it's as tall as it is. Yes, we, we, we have uh, tried to find any number of solutions that could make that a little smaller, um, but the overhead crane just drives that. Yeah. But the key thing about the enclosure, you look at all the openings in the side, our requirement is that the enclosure be more than 40% open to airflow when we're operating. 
that's to get this isothermal profile that, that Barbara talked about. So the yeah. air inside the dome is the same as outside. The temperatures of the mirror is the same as the ambient air. And we find that in Chile, that's the key to good image quality is good thermal control. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. So I guess it's also heated and air conditioned inside uh, during the daytime to- You have to wear your, your coat if you like. We don't heat. Um, we don't <laughs> air condition it during the day or not. The telescopes we have there currently, we do not air condition because the, the nice thing about these coastal sites in Chile is the difference between the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature is not so high. So hmm. you don't okay. have to manage that much. But it's a big building sitting in the sun. So we are we have engineered it to allow air conditioning. We just haven't yet decided if that's necessary. That's part of our ongoing thermal and airflow uh, modeling that we're doing. And, and some of that we're doing with the Boeing company. And you know, those guys know how airflow works. So they're really fun to work with. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and then one other element of construction, if you scroll up, there is an image of two people. At site 38? Um, the test cell. Ah, uh, the test cell. There ah, yes, a, yes. There's one with Barbara and yeah. GMT outside test cell. Yes. Yes. There's two images, one inside, um, which is the, oh, they're labeled, okay. Um, so. Which is it? Oh, there it is. Um, there are two of them. So let's talk about the one on the outside, which is GMT outside. So that's an actual scale. It's shorter than the actual test cells that we're going to build. Um, and the reason it's shorter is so that it fits underneath the test tower at University of Arizona. Hmm. And we're building this to prove out to, um, we're building a complete um, uh, actuator and hardpoint uh, support and um, system. Sorry, I'm getting my words all mixed up here. Um, so basically we're building out a, a complete test cell, um, which will um, is very similar to the actual test cell that we'll have on the telescope, but the actuators and the hard points are going to be production um, hard points and actuators. And this way we can test out our control system to make sure as, um, uh, as uh, Pat was talking about in our, act, our active optic system, uh, we want it, we're developing the software for that, and then we want to make sure that it is safe to put glass on. So we're building an actual mirror simulator, uh, which will simulate the weight and CG of a mirror that we'll put on top of the support structure, and, um, and then test out our control system. And then once we have determined that it's uh, safe to put glass on and that we have that working, we're going to put an actual mirror on it. And then that way we can confirm that the polishing process that we're doing uh, with the mirrors um, has given us the prescription that we want. And we'll test that underneath the test tower. It'll also um, be able to prove our, we've developed a finite element model that, um, that simulates the stresses within the mirror. And so we wanna be able to correlate that model to actual test. And so that, that will occur um, in a couple of years from now. So in, right now we're in the process of building up this test cell, which is nearing completion. Um, this is the exterior of it. And then the other image that says interior, that's the interior um, of the test cell itself. So what you see above us are some holes that are being uh, drilled out and that's where the actuators will interface. Uh, there's one more image that, um, um, B, which is labeled um, test cell top plate. And you can see this clover shaped machined um, part. That is where the triple actuator interfaces. So the triple actuator will mount underneath that top plate. And, the, um, and then there's a interface plate that bolts to the load spreader on the back of the mirror. And so we will mount the mirror on top of the actuator, which will be, um, uh, underneath this top plate. Holy cow, this thing just keeps getting more and more uh, complicated. There's also a picture of the triple actuator too. I'm showing that real quick uh, yes. that you had in your diagram. That's that's good for scale. So in that picture, you can see it's um, the angle of it. It's kind of hard to see the clover leaf shape, um, but that's this um, where Damien's hand is, where it's that flat surface there. That is what mounts to the backside of that top plate. And then what you're seeing here, the blue, 
those are the load cells on the air cylinders. And um, the interior is what I showed you earlier here in my hand. And then those three interface with that plate there, that is what bolts to the load spreader. And so the forces you can see are applied, um, you know, in that those in those three directions that that work together to apply one force into the back of the mirror. All right. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. We're going to have to stop there. I I wanted to get a, we didn't get a chance to talk about the instruments or uh, any no, other, so the ways much. in which things uh, uh, are getting paid for things like that. But I wanted to talk more about the collaboration as well. But we're out of time, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to stop the hangout there. I want to thank I want to thank our guests so much. Our guests today are Barbara Fisher and uh, Patrick McCarthy. Uh, Patrick is the uh, vice president of the G Giant Magellan Telescope, and Barbara Fisher is the primary mirror subsystem lead for the uh, Giant Magellan Telescope. Thank you guys so much for taking time out to tell us all about this amazing system, which we can start looking forward to in a few years, it sounds like. Let me, let me also add, uh, uh, Barbara and Patrick, just thank you both very much for coming on today. And, and as Tony said, you know, I feel like we're kind of cutting ourselves off mid-conversation. There's so much more to talk about. We'd love to have you guys back at some point and uh, especially talk a little bit about the progress made between today and, and the next time we talk about and get into more stuff. Okay. Look forward to it. Right. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank, Thank you guys you. so much for, for being here. And on behalf of uh, uh, Christian Reddy from Launchpad Astronomy, I want to thank you all so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up.